Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. And today we are going to be talking about not just one of my favorite movies, which it is, but what I think will prove to be one of the most important movies of the early 21st century, David Fincher's The Social Network. I didn't plan it this way, but it turns out that this is actually kind of a timely pick. First of all, David Fincher has another movie coming out in a couple weeks called Mank, about the making of Citizen Kane. He's been making comments that have been flying around social media. Uh, And also, literally, as I sit here and record this, Mark Zuckerberg is testifying in front of the Senate about Facebook's role in sharing information, potentially spreading misinformation, whose information they're sharing, whose information they're not sharing, why, what their policies are. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Not just this movie, The Social Network, which is a great movie in its own right, but also whether what happens in the movie is what actually happened and why Aaron Sorkin in particular may have made some of the creative choices that he did and also the movie's role in Facebook's growth over the past decade into what it has become, Uh, Frankenstein's monster uh, to some people, uh, to others, uh, a great technology, one of the best leaps forward in technology. Could it be both? We're going to cover all of that on today's show, but first, let's talk about the movie at hand. I'm not embarrassed, you just made a lot of that up. She was under oath. Then I guess that would be the first time somebody's lied under oath. I remember back in 2007-2008 when it was announced that Aaron Sorkin was going to be writing a Facebook movie. And much like when we were talking about with The Dark Knight, how before it came out, nobody really knew what it was going to be. And so there was a lot of skepticism. There was even more skepticism about the idea of a Facebook movie. It's like, oh, a Facebook movie? What's next? A Friendster movie? What's next? A MySpace movie? It was met in a lot of circles uh, with derision. Now, the fact that Aaron Sorkin was writing it certainly hedged a lot of people's bets a little bit. Then when David Fincher signed on to direct it, I think people started to take it a little bit more seriously. But the concept of a Facebook movie at that time was pretty ridiculous because keep in mind, even though Facebook was popular when this movie came out, it was nowhere near the gigantic success that it would become in the following years. I'm really glad that I was not an online personality at the time because I will promise you there would have been video evidence of me being very wrong and very skeptical about this movie because I thought this was the dumbest idea that I had ever heard. And I actually wasn't even on Facebook at the time. I had a live journal when I graduated from college in 2005. I transitioned that into a MySpace page uh, right around the time that I moved to California later in 2005. And then I was a very slow uh, adopter of Facebook. I, I remember I had a friend who made a comedy sketch video about Facebook and I didn't get it. I didn't get anything that was happening. And it's not like everybody just jumped in and joined Facebook immediately. It was a very gradual process as people went and joined the site. I went back and looked it up. I actually first posted on Facebook on November 24th, 2008. And my first update is literally, Dan Merle is still very wary of all this. Because even the way that Facebook worked was different. Uh, You couldn't just post whatever you want. Everything that you posted started with Dan Merle dot, dot, dot. It would be like, is this, is that. It was not the same site. As a matter of fact, it wasn't even close. I went back and looked at the user numbers. When I joined Facebook in 2008, it had under 500 million users. It now has over 2.7 billion. 
So one of the things about the social network that I think is unique is that it came so early in the life cycle of the thing that it was documenting less than a decade after the start of Facebook. While at the time it seemed very cutting edge, now when we look back on it, it almost seems quaint because this conflict and this drama between Eduardo and Sean Parker and everybody else seems almost meaningless compared to what Facebook is now facing. But it's clear now that we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. And that goes for fake news, for foreign interference in elections and hate speech, as well as developers and data privacy. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a big mistake. So I think any discussion of the social network pretty much begins and has to begin with Jesse Eisenberg as Mark Zuckerberg. And when I was going back through the archives and trying to find news stories from this era, Mark Zuckerberg was not very pleased at the time that a Facebook movie was going to be made, partly because the book that this movie was based upon, The Accidental Billionaires, certainly did not paint him in a very flattering light. And then the movie would paint him in a less flattering light. And that's where I think you have to look at Jesse Eisenberg's performance in the film, because it really is a performance. He is playing a character almost more than anyone else in this film. The rest of my attention is back at the offices of Facebook, where my colleagues and I are doing things that no one in this room, including and especially your clients, are intellectually or creatively capable of doing. We're going to get to fact versus fiction a little bit later in the show, but I do want to focus on Eisenberg's performance as Mark Zuckerberg because it really is something that, that I certainly had never seen from him at that time. I was aware of him. I'd seen The Squid and the Whale. I'd seen Adventureland. I think I might have seen Zombieland at the time that the movie came out, but I didn't not expect a performance of this caliber from Jesse Eisenberg, and I don't think a lot of other people did either. The fact that he nailed this part so well, got that much-deserved and well-earned Best Actor nomination at the Academy Awards, I I think it it recontextualized Jesse Eisenberg in a lot of people's eyes. I know you've done your homework, and so you know that money isn't a big part of my life, but at the moment, I could buy Mount Auburn Street, take the Phoenix Club, and turn it into my ping-pong room. Early on in the film's lifespan, the buzz was that this role was going to go to Shia LaBeouf or Michael Sarah. Michael Sarah, I think, is the comedy version of this. I, I really don't see him doing this role. Shia LaBeouf in your brain, you can kind of think, if you go back to like 2008, 2009, Shia LaBeouf, I could see it happening, but Aaron Sorkin has such a specific cadence and and words and the, the tone and tenor and tempo of how you speak and say them are so specific. And I think Jesse Eisenberg took to that so well. Uh, while this may not have been a great imitation of the real Mark Zuckerberg, it was an exceptional character and an exceptional performance. The users are interconnected. That is the whole point. College kids are online because their friends are online. And if one domino goes, the other dominoes go. Don't you get that? Two of the supporting roles also featured actors that I had never seen in a movie before. Of course, they had done work, but I hadn't seen it. The first is Andrew Garfield, and his performance had a lot of buzz. There was a lot of talk that he might get an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. I think he would have deserved it. He did not get that nomination. But he, in many ways, is the character I sympathize with the most, largely because he's always the voice of moderation and responsibilities, it turns out. Maybe that wasn't the best thing for Facebook at that time, but I certainly do relate to him and the fact that he's doing his best to make this business succeed. I'm in New York riding subways 14 hours a day trying to find out. And how's it going so far? And he plays the notes of this character so well. The excitement at the beginning, the skepticism, the determination, and ultimately the anger and the betrayal of having this really good friend completely cut him out of the business. You better lawyer up, asshole, because I'm not coming back for 30%. I'm coming back for everything. 
The other actor that I hadn't seen before this movie is Army Hammer, who kind of plays both Winklevoss twins. I'm 6'5", 220, and there's two of me. I'm with well, this guy. whatever. I'm saying let's calm down until we know what we're talking about. It really is a dual performance from Josh Pence and Army Hammer, but on screen, the face and the voice uh, that you see in here uh, is that of Army Hammer. And again, you, sometimes you just see somebody in a movie and you, you, you that's a movie star. And that's what I felt about Army Hammer. Of course, he would go on to become a pretty big movie star. But Andrew Garfield and Army Hammer, two performances in this movie that I saw and immediately you just go, those guys are gonna be big. Now I am asking you for the last time, let's take the considerable resources at our disposal and sue him in federal court. The other key role in this movie that was a bit of a risk is Justin Timberlake as Sean Parker. And in a weird way, I think I was the least skeptical of Timberlake only because I had seen, by the time this movie came out, Alpha Dog. So strangely, of all the seasoned and trained actors that were in the movie, the one that I had the most faith in was Justin Timberlake. Debatable how close it is to the real Sean Parker, but in the context of this movie, it really is this idea that there was no one person that was right. Because largely, even though he did great damage to this friendship, his advice and his business moves were the things that made Facebook succeed, at least succeed on the level that it did. Now, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? That's a question that the movie asks, and it's now a question that we as a society are asking. A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? You? A billion dollars. Other than in front of the camera, of course, there was some stellar work that was being done behind the camera. Aaron Sorkin, who wrote the script, he would win the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. The contributions of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross can also not be underestimated. And they broke a lot of rules in this movie that I think you saw a lot of other filmmakers and composers go on to say later on, oh, oh, I can do that? Okay, then I'm gonna do that because there's so much unconventional music in this film. The first thing we're going to need is a lot of pictures. Unfortunately, Harvard doesn't keep a public centralized Facebook, so I'm going to have to get all the images from the individual houses that people are in. There are so many other films that took what this movie did in terms of score and orchestration and then put it on their movies. Some of them were imitations of the score. Some of them took what the score did and built on it. Uh, but I think without their work on this movie, you don't get a lot of the scores that, you've, that we've had in the last 10 years. And then, of course, we've got the director, David Fincher. And this is, and I was talking about this with some friends a couple of days ago, what I like about this era of, of his career is that with this movie and also previously with The Curious Case of Benjamin Button and the fact that he has gone on to make a, a couple of other very different films, including Mank, which I'm very much looking forward to seeing, he's growing as a filmmaker. He's still ob obviously interested in psychology. But what I like is he is taking risks here. Not that he wasn't before, but he's branching out and trying new things. And he is a director who's not afraid of technology. And in a weird way to me, he's the, the, the reverse of the coin with Robert Zemeckis. Because I feel like Robert Zemeckis in his last, the last however many decade or so of his career, has been kind of hamstrung by an obsession of pushing the envelope with technology. But I don't think it's necessarily worked all the time. With David Fincher... He has consistently 
been pushing the envelope on technology, but I think it has worked in his favor. And as a matter of fact, I think it has helped him grow as a filmmaker. And particularly with the body and the face replacement that he's that he did on the Winklevoss twins that works flawlessly and was the right choice uh, for those characters. Even things like the tilt shift photography at the regatta. Things like the audio mix on the club scene, the fact that he buries the audio under this booming club sound. Look at my face and tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. These are all things that maybe couldn't have worked, but work in the context of this movie. And I think that's why David Fincher remains such an interesting director, because he's not afraid to take risks, but also because the risks that he does take pay off and make sense in the movie. With this great team in place and with advanced buzz that the script was actually pretty good, there definitely was a lot more talk about the social network leading up to its release. And then the trailer came out. And if you ask me best trailer of the last 10 years, again, the social network is going to be right up there in my mind because this use of the familiar imagery of Facebook of the status updates, of what it was at that time, which was not the global behemoth, but still something that was a part of a lot of people's everyday lives, over that cover of Radiohead's Creep, and then bringing in the clips from the film, I really think that was a great, effective way to market the movie. And when I saw that trailer, that's what sold me and said, oh, I have to see this movie. I need to do something substantial in order to get the attention of the clubs. Off of a $40 million budget, it made over $200 million worldwide, which is a great return on that. But more so, it really did. It was almost like history in real time. I, I think that it's one of those movies that means something completely different to people now than it did at the time. At the time, it was very sensationalistic. It was about this up-and-coming thing. It was a very unique look at, 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 you know, nobody usually does this kind of movie until long afterwards, but like this is writing the history of the world at the time that we're living it. Now it seems like these are the things that led to the things that would definitely change the world. Leading up to award season, there was, in my mind, a bit of a generational conflict because the two leading contenders for the awards were this movie, The Social Network, and then a Tom Hooper movie called The King's Speech starring Colin Firth. And The Social Network actually had the early lead. And when you go back and look at the award season prior to the Academy Awards, The Social Network was very well positioned to take home Best Picture, perhaps Best Director. I remember being very angry watching the Academy Awards and realizing that it was very likely that The Social Network was not going to win the top prizes of the night. Now, Jesse Eisenberg and Best Actor, that had been clinched for Colin Firth and The King's Speech a long time before the Academy Awards. It was deemed to be his time. It's a pretty good performance. It's fine. Uh, but that, that's not what I really cared about. It was great to see Aaron Sorkin win. It was great to see uh, the movie win for best score. It also went for best editing. And I think that was a well-deserved award. But it lost best director to Tom Hooper, who would go on to do things like Ruin Les Miserables with what I think is a very mediocre film adaptation and then make Cats, which is just... Um, Cats, and then it lost Best Picture to The King's Speech. And I was very upset about that then. I'm still pretty perturbed by it now. If you look at the awards that The Social Network was nominated for, it lost Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor to The King's Speech. Uh, I would easily flop Best Director and Best Picture over to The Social Network. I could easily flop Best Actor over to Jesse Eisenberg. Then it lost Best Cinematography and Best Sound Mixing to Inception. Best Cinematography, I could flip over to The Social Network 
best sound mixing, both great movies. I can't really begrudge it there, but it's not so much what The Social Network did win, it's what it didn't win. And I really do think that if you took today's Academy and had them vote on the movies from 10 years ago, I think that The Social Network would win. I just think that the King's speech was safe, that a lot of the Oscar voters didn't know what Facebook was, didn't care what Facebook was, maybe had the same kind of derision for the movie that I did when I first heard about it, and thus the safer movie won. But this is another example of the fact that the Best Picture Academy Award is great at the time, but doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be the legacy of your movie. Because over time, The Social Network is the movie from that year that people still remember and that people still talk about. And that's what we're going to talk about in the second half of the show, because it could very well be that that was the end of the story, that Aaron Sorkin wrote a Facebook movie that had a great cast and a great director, that it did well at the Academy Awards. Maybe it should have won Best Picture, uh, but hey, everybody had a great time. However, because of what Facebook is and because of what it has meant to people and what it still means to people right now, the social network in a weird way is more relevant now than it was when it came out. And that's what we're going to talk about right after this. This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. You know, in my opinion, I think that cereal is the perfect food. You can have it first thing in the morning as part of a great breakfast. You could have it in the middle of the morning for a snack. You could have it for dinner. You could have it right before bed. It fits into any part of the day. But you know, when I want a bowl of cereal, I'm not always wanting to get jacked up on a bunch of sugar, especially if it's right before bedtime. What am I just gonna like eat all this sugar and then go to bed? No, I'm gonna be up till four o'clock in the morning. That's where Magic Spoon comes in. Not only does Magic Spoon have zero sugar, it has 11 grams of protein and three net grams of carbs in each serving. And you've got some great flavors to choose from. You've got blueberry, cocoa, frosted, and then my favorite, which is the fruity flavor. I poured myself a bowl of the fruity flavor Magic Spoon cereal earlier today. It was like I was sitting at the breakfast table when I was a kid. It was like the cereal that I ate growing up, except that Magic Spoon is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, GMO-free, soy-free, and low-carb. So if you want to try this out, go to magicspoon.com movies. You can get the variety pack, try out all these flavors for yourself, and don't forget to use our special promo code MOVIES to get free shipping on your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident that they are going to send you some great cereal, they have a 100% happiness guarantee. That means if you're not happy with their product for any reason, you will get your money back, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash movies and use the code movies to get free shipping on your order. And I'd like to thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring the podcast. So I want to talk about, first of all, what is true about this movie and what's not true? Because when it was written, we were still very much in the aftermath of the events that were portrayed in the film. In the years since, there has been a lot more that's been learned and is known about what has gone on and what is still going on at Facebook and how all of this ultimately shook out. I do feel a little bit for Mark Zuckerberg, the actual Mark Zuckerberg, because I can only imagine what it would be like if somebody were to make a biopic about me that I don't really have any say in, that's largely written by the people in the world who have the biggest grudges against me. I can imagine not being too happy about that. Reportedly, Mark Zuckerberg wasn't either, especially when you consider he's trying to build Facebook at the same time this movie comes out that basically paints him as a completely emotionless creep 
who is uh, pushes everyone away, who dicked over everybody he ever really knew, who might have stolen his huge idea. Almost none of that is true, or at least a good portion of that is not true, which we'll talk about later. Uh, but I do have sympathy for Mark Zuckerberg. The movie itself kind of touches on this, and this goes with a lot of Fincher's movies, which is the reality that you're seeing on screen isn't always necessarily an endorsement of those characters or of that reality. They talk about the fact that this is a subjective film and you have the line where, you know, Rosita Jones is saying that 85% of testimony uh, is biased and the other 15% is perjury. When there's emotional testimony, I assume 85% of it is exaggeration. And the other 15? Perjury. Creation myths need a devil. So let's take a little bit of a closer look at the, the larger events in this film and what the reality may have been. And the first thing, obviously, is with the Winklevoss twins. Now, the movie kind of leaves it a little bit nebulous that did he steal the idea? Did he not? It kind of comes to the side that he didn't, but he also really uh, wasn't very forthcoming in what he was doing. When Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss and Divya Narendra asked you to build Harbor Connection, did you say yes? I said I'd help. But when you go back and look at the actual chain of events, the likely scenario of what happened is that Mark Zuckerberg was approached by the Winklevoss twins and Divya Narendra to build Harvard Connection at that time. It would later become Connect You. And Mark Zuckerberg did see the value of social networking, but he didn't like the idea that they had for their site. It maybe spurred him to build his own site, but he didn't steal theirs. Now, it also seems very evident that he knew that he wasn't going to build this thing. He he wanted to stall them because the Winklevoss twins had a lot of resources that he didn't have, and he didn't want his site to have to compete with their site. Did he stall them? Yes. It seems like he did definitely stall them in order to delay the launch of their site in order to make his site in a non-competitive environment. Is that stealing? No. Is it underhanded? I would say, yeah, it's a little underhanded. He definitely screwed him over. Uh, is it something that they should have sued him for tens of millions of dollars over? I don't know. That's up to the courts to decide. There was a, there was a legal settlement. They had a, a bit of a, an issue with it later on, but they ended up getting tens of millions of dollars uh, from the relationship that they had with Mark Zuckerberg. So, I think that probably in the broad strokes, the the relationship between Mark Zuckerberg, Divya Narendra, and the Winklevoss twins uh, is pretty accurate, although, again, greatly embellished to, to make the divide between them almost driven by the fact that they are elite Harvard guys, and that was the conflict between them, and he set out to screw them over. This could help rehabilitate your image. Wow. You would do that for me. That goes to the why he did this question that we'll talk about with Aaron Sorkin. Business Insider also found some emails that contain Mark Zuckerberg's correspondence about Eduardo Saverin and why he diluted his share in the company. It wasn't to 0.03%. It was closer to 10%, uh, but still essentially cut him out of the business. And again, you see Sorkin injecting the why into this. Tell me this isn't about me getting into the Phoenix. When in reality, it really does seem like it was closer to the fact that Eduardo was taking Facebook in a direction that he didn't want it to go. And so Mark Zuckerberg decided, I'm going to dilute his shares. Now, they do have emails where he says, essentially, I want to dilute Eduardo's shares and I don't want him to know about it. So how do we get him to sign the paperwork saying we can dilute his shares without telling him that we're going to? And his lawyer in this correspondence basically says, okay, well, you can do that. You can get him to sign the paperwork and then dilute it without telling him. 
But I'm telling you, you should not do that. I'm telling you that if you do this, it's very likely that he's going to come back and sue you uh, for betraying your fiduciary duty to him, which is exactly what ended up happening. So I think what you see here with Mark Zuckerberg, you have a guy who wanted to create something, who created it, something that had explosive growth, runaway success beyond certainly anything he could ever have imagined, who's never run a business before, and basically makes a lot of really bad business decisions. It's much sexier to write a script about this guy, Mark Zuckerberg, who isn't great with girls, who is out for revenge. That's a much deeper idea than, here's a college kid who didn't really know what he was doing, was a little underhanded with some of the people that he worked with and ultimately made bad decisions that caused him to get sued uh, in which the people were paid tens of millions of dollars. Not as compelling of a story, and you see why Aaron Sorkin decided to inject that drama. Unfortunately for Mark Zuckerberg, he's the one that gets painted in the bad light there. You're not an asshole, Mark. You're just trying so hard to be. And looking at the people who actually made the movie, they seem to fall on Zuckerberg's side. Uh, David Fincher in the commentary for the film talks about the fact that he never thought that Zuckerberg was a bad guy, just somebody who was really driven. It was easy for me to direct the deposition sequence because I honestly believe that at the same time that the Winklevosses are saying, without us and without our having that conversation, this thing doesn't exist. And I also believe that without Mark Zuckerberg, there is nothing to divide. So that's the movie that I made. That's what informed every choice of every single take that finally exists in the movie. And it's not really a shock to know as you go into the facts of the case that Mark Zuckerberg is not necessarily a portrait of a real person. He is almost wholly an Aaron Sorkin creation. He is a great Aaron Sorkin creation, but still a creation. When you cut down to the heart of it and you look back at 2007, 2008, when Aaron Sorkin was developing his script for this film, he didn't really know much about Facebook. He didn't understand much about it. And he really had kind of an antipathy toward the internet. There's a, a an episode of The West Wing where Aaron Sorkin basically writes a whole scene for Bradley Whitford's Josh Lyman about posting in internet chat rooms and why people are so mean. The people on these sites, they're the cast of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. The muumuu wearing parliament smoker, that's Nurse Ratchet. When Nurse Ratchet is unhappy, the patients are unhappy. Aaron Sorkin didn't want to make a movie about Mark Zuckerberg. Aaron Sorkin wanted to make a movie about jealousy. He wanted to make a movie about the things that he likes in movies. There are elements in this story that are a result of storytelling itself, of friendship and loyalty, jealousy, class, uh, power, betrayal. There was no Erica Albright. There was no one girl that spurred Mark to go build Facebook. His dealings with Eduardo were not driven by the fact that Eduardo got into a final club. But Aaron Sorkin, you can tell when he was writing the script, couldn't understand why. Why did Mark Zuckerberg do this thing? Why would this college student build this social network? And so when he went to make his script, he set out to answer the question of why. Because it's very clear there's a bit of a generational disconnect between Zuckerberg and Sorkin. And so he injected these things. He injected the jealousy. He injected Erica Albright because it was the answer to a question that he as a writer had. And I don't think he would have wanted to tell this story without answering that question. And it's really interesting to watch Mark Zuckerberg's reaction to the movie because he didn't really get it either. And it turns out that the reason that he built Facebook was because he wanted to build Facebook. And, and basically they frame it as if the whole reason for making Facebook and building something was because I 
wanted to get girls or wanted to get into some kind of social institution. It's such a big disconnect from, I think, the way that people who make movies think about what we do in Silicon Valley, building stuff. Right? Like, they just can't wrap their head around the idea that someone might build something because they like building things. <laughs> of course, the thing you have to acknowledge when you're talking about Facebook is the fact that since this movie has come out, it has grown beyond belief. And it really, I think, has grown out of the control of the very people who created it. And this goes a little bit more into personal opinion here, but I really do think that when we look back in 10 or 20 or maybe even fewer years at this era, social media is going to be viewed as one of the greatest innovations to happen to society and one of the worst things to happen to society because we have now seen the weaponization of these platforms for people to subvert the old norms, to basically get rid of the barriers that used to separate fact from fiction and create their own universes where their fact is the fact and the other facts are fiction. What I believe is true and what I don't believe is false. And I think what Facebook has revealed and what social media has revealed is that ultimately the why of humanity when using social media has become to create the world that I want. And that really does kind of cut to the why that Aaron Sorkin wrote about in this movie. The character of Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook almost as a revenge ploy, as, as revenge against those who wronged him as revenge against those who excluded him and shut them out. And so he decided to create his own world where he wrote the rules and he decided who got to succeed and who didn't get to succeed. And isn't that really where we are with social media right now? We've created a microcosm of worlds where we decide who our friends are and we get to cut out the ones that we don't wanna to listen to. We get to dilute their shares in our minds to 0.03% and only include the people that we want. Facebook and social media are now a context-free environment. And you know, there's a very fleeting line in this movie where they're talking about the farm animals, comparing women to farm animals, which is something that Mark Zuckerberg, both in real life and in the movie, had thought about doing as he was launching FaceMash, which would become the first thing that gained him notoriety. And he says, it was a joke. I shouldn't have written nothing about the farm animals. That was stupid. But I was kidding, for God's sakes. Doesn't anybody have a sense of humor? And it's not a big line in the movie, but I think that that was the beginning of how so many people seem to regard the internet. When you do things that succeed, it's great. When you do something that's over the line, it was a joke. It was satire. I didn't mean it. It was supposed to be fun. And that's how you get away with it. How many times have we seen in court that a personality who largely through social media has what they say amplified out to the world when they have to face the consequences of those actions say, oh, I wasn't serious. I, I'm not a news person. I'm not, a, I'm not an analyst. I'm a, I'm a satirist. I'm a commentator. It was a joke. It's funny to think about an era when the most controversial thing about Facebook was how it was created. The founding of it. Now that's maybe not even the top 10 most controversial things about Facebook. When you see what's happened with the platform, everything about Facebook has changed. Everything about social media and to an increasing degree, everything about society has changed. But it has been driven by the fact that in a vacuum, when we are given social media, when, it, when the control is wrested from its creators and given to us, 
it seems that society to a very large part decides instead of using it to connect to people, instead using it to wall ourselves off, to find the people that we agree with, to join our social networks with them, but then to cut ties with everyone else. And so that we are just in a bubble. We're in a bubble of our own making where everything that we want to know is true is true and everything that we don't want to know is true is false and that's it. And in a weird way, it brings us right back to the ending of this movie. And again, why I think that Aaron Sorkin, while he didn't get the whys of the actual Mark Zuckerberg right, may have gotten the whys of human nature right because isn't that really what so many people are doing on social networks now? Instead of engaging with the world and and bringing in out input and bringing in the vast collection of knowledge that you can get from being able to connect with people from every country and every corner of the world, so many people now, and I'll include myself, are sitting in a room alone, hitting refresh, waiting to hear what they want to hear. As always, I love to break down the actual physical copy that I have of The Social Network, and this is it. I think this might still be the only edition of The Social Network that was released. First of all, I want to say this is one of my favorite Blu-rays because it has an incredible amount of special features, but it's also one of my least favorite because it has this weird three-quarter slip cover that you can just take off the top and it just falls off. And usually these things are disposable, but as you can see, the cover itself has like it's, it's just got some text. It's black text on a black cover. You can barely see the name of the movie. Uh, and, you know, the front at least has the, the, the poster and the, you know, the four stars. The back has the description. So I've kept this weird slip cover. But anytime I'm moving movies around or if I pull the movie out, this thing falls off. So I do have some qualms with the packaging. That's the only qualm I have with this because obviously you have the movie. This is a Blu-ray. So it's a great HD print of the movie. Uh, you have two audio commentaries on the disc. You have one with David Fincher. You have one with Aaron Sorkin and selected members of the cast. They're both great insights into the making of the movie. And then particularly with the cast and Aaron Sorkin, the process of making the film and of developing the characters. And then on the second disc, there are some really great special features. There is uh, a documentary that's over an hour and a half long about the making of the movie. It's called How Did They Ever Make a Movie of Facebook? And it's just about the production and includes uh, some some great anecdotes uh, from the making of the film and the development of the film. Okay, everyone, smile. You know, a, let's have a fake moment where we memorialize all the fun that we weren't having. You mean I'm doing that? They also have a great breakdown on the visuals of the film, the post-production aspect of the film, and the score of the movie. And really sitting in with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross as they wrote the score of the film is fascinating to know how they structured and why they structured this movie music as they did. And in particular, that title scene where the track we call Hand Covers Bruise plays. When we wrote that, I don't think we were both thinking, here's the main title theme, you know? But seeing it in there, I was amazed, and this is the first time I've done this, but I was amazed at how much the music could change your expectation of the film and your impression and set the whole tone. And it really is a painstakingly detailed breakdown of the making of the movie. If you're looking for a great chronicle of making a movie from beginning to end, the social network, this Blu-ray disc, really does set the gold standard, you know, apart from things like the the huge amount of behind-the-scenes stuff on the Lord of the Rings films, as far as this is the portrait of a director at work, and I love watching David Fincher work because you can also see some of that exacting detail that he has as a director. He's obviously not an easy director to work for, and maybe sometimes not an easy director to work with, but you can't argue with the results. 
results. Pepper shaker needs to go three inches camera left. The Coca-Cola can needs to go behind it. Turn the computer so that it's facing us a little bit more. Please, let's not have any of that. I saw a knit cap. I saw this knit cap right here. You got a cap. Tell the guy with the computer in his lap that his job is to push the buttons. That's the only way that this works. It's not air power. There's no reason on a shot like this ever have a blue shadow, ever for any reason at all. And that pretty much wraps it up for my breakdown of The Social Network. As I mentioned, one of my favorite movies of this decade. Are you a fan of the film? Do you plan on revisiting it? What do you think about what it says about Facebook and society today? As always, please let me know down below in the comments. And if you're watching us on the Schmodown Entertainment Network, please head over to Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, wherever you like to listen to podcasts, download the show. And if you like the show, give us a rating that really helps the show grow. If you're listening to us, thanks for listening. And if you want to check the video portion of the show out, you can find us over on the Schmodown Entertainment Network. We will be back next week with a holiday favorite as we enter the holiday season, one of my favorite comedies. I'm excited to talk about that with you. But until then, it's time to go back to the show. Thanks for watching.